The reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 11, reading verses 33 to 36, I invite your reverent attention to the public reading of God's word here at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Winston Churchill once said, History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Uh, he did write a lot of history, uh, but nevertheless, I do think history has been very kind to uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, but he was, to say the least, uh, a man with many faults and uh, therefore limited, to say the least. In contrast, in great contrast, redemptive history is past and present and its application and execution will continue unstoppable and unabated to the end. And it is magnificent because God writes it. And there is in our text a profound illustration of just that. The Apostle Paul is writing of the unprecedented beauty and magnificence of redemptive history. Uh, it's a uh, doxology or song of praise for God's accomplishments in that history. And, and those accomplishments are uh, are set against an implicit contrast of the fallenness of man, uh, the wickedness and sinfulness of which everyone in this room is a part. And yet, if you know Christ as your Savior, uh, God has made you a part of redemptive history. Uh, if you're like me, and uh, very quick, personal confession, I sometimes wonder, how, how, how can it be? Um, pondering our own wickedness, my own wickedness, how could it be? Uh, and of course, it's redemptive history. God saves sinners. He doesn't save the qualified because no one is qualified. He saves the lost. And all of us in time were lost. And Christ came to save the lost. Not to qualify the lost. Uh, by the way, I might add very quickly, if you, if you do not know the Savior, you are still in that category. And there is absolutely no hope whatsoever, save in God's redemptive history in His Son. The uh, doxology begins, uh, in verse 33, with a statement of praise. It begins the song. Uh, Paul is in awe of what God 
has and is doing and captures the wonderment of it all in the phrase, oh, the depths of the riches. As you know, depth is a standard of measurement. But here it references eternity and infinity. Meaning that you cannot measure it. The infinite greatness of God in saving those that are lost is, is infinite. Particularly when you ponder that it is unstoppable and will run its course and nothing will get in its way. Specifically, the riches of God's accomplishments are so grand and expansive that they are immeasurable. Every time I invite a contractor to my home, which I do often because things are always broken, um, they always have a tape measurement. Well, Phil, let me measure this out and I'll give you a prize. Well, go measure salvation. There is no prize. Just free grace in the Savior. The content of the riches are wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge of God is omniscient, meaning that it has no end. He knows everything. Uh, by the way, I might remind you from the attributes of God, He knew everything in one eternal moment. Uh, you and I are always learning. God doesn't learn. Doesn't have to learn. He knows it before it even occurs. And... His wisdom is the application of that knowledge to the achievement of the divine end. Decrees of God, established by God in eternity past, applied with the wisdom of God. And divine counsel of the covenant of redemption is so vast in its sheer majesty and greatness uh, that Paul is taken aback in his inability to comprehend it. If you will, his mind simply cannot grasp the immensity of it all. The divine attributes brought to bear in the execution of the covenant of redemption, if you will, leave him speechless. It reminds me of uh, the text, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul speaks of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. You and I live in an economy driven by wealth, uh, certainly in the capitalist system. Uh, good as that is, it should be driven by merit and accomplishments and hard work. And again, so I'm not attacking that system. I simply uh, trust we can uphold it. Um, uh, but nonetheless, um, all treasures, all wealth, uh, when I was stationed at Fort Knox, as you know, that's where the gold depository the United States is. That's chump change. Uh, that's not even a rounding error in measurement of the treasures that are uh, uh, that can be applied to Christ and His redemptive work. Uh, because there is no price that can be put upon it. Uh, and Again, the amazement extends to the decree of election, the 
Judgments are therefore unsearchable. You could, uh, you could go on a safari to discover every inch of the grand earth on which we live. Uh, simply could not search out the immensity, the power and greatness of God to save. Not just to save, but the implicit acknowledgement of the object. He came to save sinners. One outcome, perhaps the greatest in the language of the Apostle Paul, is doctrine of justification, the pardon of all sin, and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to all of the elect throughout the ages. Ponder that. Numbered as the sand of the seashore, those whom God justifies by His sovereign grace, simply pardoning them of all their sins and imputing to them uh, the merits of the righteousness of the Son of God so that we owe everything to Him. The judicial decree is so vast in its implication that Paul turns to infinity to describe it. The word uh, here, uh, unsearchable, is, is only used in this, this text. Used nowhere else in the New Testament. Uh, the cognate verb, as implied, is to search. Compound form is to search carefully. I always think, always think of my wedding ring when I think of to search carefully. I'm always losing it. Oh my goodness, where is it? <laughs> so I'll, I'll ransack all my trouser pockets and uh, go through all my dirty clothes. And you know, generally it's where you know where it is where I last left it, of course. But um, just you know, terror kind of creeps uh, across me. But um, this is something that you could not search out. It's so great, it's majesty. Uh, this word is, is, is not just a compound, it's a triple, triple compound form of the cognate simply to search. You know, my metaphor is the, is the researcher who goes to files and stacks of books to complete a project only to discover that the files and the stacks of books are never ending. They're endless. Because the subject, because the subject of the riches of the grace of God is without end. Uh, I can relate to the fact that some of you uh, <clears throat> going to school or perhaps advancing your education, uh, occasionally you go to a place called the library. Um, This, this library uh, cannot be contained in anything. Uh, not even the Library of Congress. Not even the library of every Congress in the world could contain the majesty, the singularity, and the beauty of redemption and the implied object, sinners. The wonderment, therefore, is without end. Secondly, God's ways are unfathomable. 
unfathomable. Verse 33 again. Paul gives us a personal testimony in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 to me, the very least of all saints. I'd remind you who the Apostle Paul was. Probably in the course of humanity, the greatest pure man that's ever been born. He says, to me, the least of all saints. You know why? Because he knew who he was. He was a sinner. God wasn't impressed with his learning, his accomplishments, his stature among the children of Israel. Those, those mean nothing. Nothing. And because of the evil that Paul had done, he says, to me, the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's not like the great gold rush in America. People fleeing to California. Or the great silver rushes, people fleeing to Colorado. The saints flee to Christ. Where there's a partial measurement of the end of the grace of God. Uh, the word unfathomable is literally beyond all human ability to trace out. Referencing the ways that God deals with men. I see it as a reference to the divine omnipotence that God can manifest His power to affect His ends at any point in time in which He wishes. He simply wills it to be and the end of bringing a rebel to bow before the cross is affected at the divine moment established by God in eternity past. Um, always enjoy listening to people's personal testimonies. Those are also incredibly different. Um, different things that Turn them, many commonalities to be sure. Obviously, it's always the grace of God in Christ. Uh, but different ways that God moves in history to bring someone to heal. Based upon what? That you could grasp it with your mind? That you understood it and your neighbor doesn't? No, simply the grace and the power of God. If that wasn't part of the equation, you would have never come to the Savior. Because God saves rebels. But not just a rebel. Innumerable rebels are brought to the exact same conclusion that without hope and faith in Jesus Christ, all is lost. And so the moment God gives them life, they flee to Him. You simply could not trace the complexity, diversity, the ways and the means. But the power of God makes vast numbers one in Christ. Let's repair the part of what is informing the Apostle Paul to write such exalted language from chapter 9, verse 15. 
Paul says, I'll have mercy of God. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion upon whom I have compassion. He goes on to say, you know, I'll harden whom I will to harden. Well, we all deserve that. If you know Christ, He had mercy. Based upon simply this circular argument of God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And then He makes sure that we understand that. When He says, so then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. If you know Christ, that's how you came to Him. He simply willed to have mercy on you. Didn't depend upon any of your accomplishments because those mean nothing to Him. And again, I celebrate accomplishments. Um, They make the world go around. But in redemptive history, God makes it go around by His power, grace, and mercy to save those whom He wills to save. And therefore, you owe everything to Him. In verses 34 to the first part of uh, verse 36, the application of this power is unique and singular. Uh, When I say unique, uh, I'm speaking of only one. That's how unique it is. Singular, God affects it. Only He could. We have an explanation in rhetorical questions. The first rhetorical question. Who is known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Well, Paul doesn't give us the answer, but we know the answer, no one. Uh, No one could know the mind of God. If they could, He wouldn't be God. No one could counsel God. If they could, He wouldn't be God. Because the finite cannot grasp the infinite. Uh, Remember a number of years ago, I was uh, diving in the Grand Cayman Islands, my younger brother. So I was going to a very popular dive site called uh, The Wall. And uh, so the boat uh, drives us out. and We jump in the water and begin to descend uh, on this wall. And on the wall, there's reference points. I mean, you can see and feel and touch the wall. Um, See the lobster running around. um, Different types of things. But my point is reference points. Uh, At one point, uh, I turned around away from the wall. And I saw from a human perspective what was to me infinity. It's as if there were no boundaries to the ocean that I was looking at. Everything was this majestic color of blue. And it was so great and so immense 
because I felt so small, I was terrified. I had to reach out and touch the wall to remind me that uh, there was a reference point. So that when you attempt to put your mind around this majesty of the grace of God, it's infinite greatness has a way of evoking a notion of terror in the sense of the fear of the Lord. Because He did for you what you could not do for yourself. And I remind you again, God does not save the qualified. He saves the lost. The text itself is a quotation from the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 13. Let's turn to the prophet. Uh, Paul is uh, quoting it. Um, Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Again, rhetorical question. Context is the taunting of idols. He's taunting the idols that Israel has turned to for salvation as over and against turning to him. Taunting the idols that they have been enamored by in comparison to the incomparability of the transcendence and the imminence of God. The prophet, of course, is referencing uh, the physical creation. Uh, If anybody in here is an architect, I don't think there are, but um, go... Go draw a hand that could hold the Pacific Ocean. You'll probably be the rest of your life. And yet, Pacific Ocean chump change to God. It's a testimony of the creation of His solitary perfections creating. And by the way, the entire physical creation, taunting of the idols, because they didn't create, is simply uh, but a photograph of a finite object, if you will, that speaks to the incomparable greatness of the spiritual creation of Jesus Christ saving His church by divine fiat, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. And the Lord spoke. And it was. Furthermore, in the second part of verse 34, God did not have to gather engineers and programmers tell Him how to do it. It's incredible to me um, science just keeps growing and discovering new things on and on. Now the scientists, by and large, if they don't know Jesus Christ, are describing a measure of physical reality, but they don't know how or why it got here. They just know that it is. 
You and I know how and why. To speak to the greatness of God. That is but a momentary glimpse of the spiritual creation, which is beyond understanding. Neither did God have to take a physics class or search the cloud. I mean, you and I do that most every day. We're searching something. New word, Google. God doesn't have to Google anything. He knows. He's always known. There never was a time in which he did not know. Because if there ever was and is a time that he did not know, he wouldn't be God. And that's the taunting of the idols. We worship finite objects. We, we chase things that have an end. You and I are otherwise. What we chase and pursue and love is something This is unfathomable, cannot be measured. God did not, furthermore, have to take out a loan or save. Great words of my mother used to tick me off. Well, you want that? Go save for it. It's not what I wanted to hear. God doesn't have to take a loan. His mind knew it, and he simply spoke it, and it was so. Paul is using the Old Testament to expand and intensify the fulfillment of the new creation. And now God dispatches His unique and only Son. Nothing else would do. The history of redemption, only God the Son could avail. There are not many ways to save, and God chose the Son. There was only one way, and that way was Christ. And so God sent His only begotten Son. And the eternal Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, God among men, gathering His own. As an illustration of the application of redemption that strikes a sense of awe in me, you could turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He says, I'm the living one and was dead, referencing his crucifixion. Then he goes on to say, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now notice the description. It's an Old Testament illusion. We don't have time to go there, but I have the keys of death and hell. My friend, that is someone with whom you must deal. Turn to chapter 3, verse 7. The angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, He was holy, he was true who has the key of David and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. Again, another Old Testament illusion um, that Christ is the sovereign over who enters the kingdom and who does not. Um, Therefore, uh, 
we are dealing with a person so grand, so great, and so incredible that he controls our eternal destiny. I always have to remind myself when I read uh, present-day history, the United States of America, current events, Bill, um, Christ is sovereign. He's at work. He's gathering his own. Those events and those actions is what should capture our hearts. And it's he who has the key. Not a committee of different heads of the world's religions. He and he alone. No one else. Our world is hell-bent on the concept of plurality. There is no plurality. He is the only unique Savior throughout all of eternity. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It's a text I'm sure you are familiar with. It's a young lady by the name of Lydia listening to Paul preach. And then in the majesty of the text, Luke writes, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by the Apostle Paul. Not Paul opened her heart. Not Lydia participated. The Lord opened her heart to respond. It's majesty of the greatness of our power of our Redeemer. In the text of Paul's contemporaries, Moses didn't open her heart because he pointed to the one who alone opens hearts. Now, I would remind you that that's power. Imagine having the power to change people's hearts. I know every parent in this room would say, bring it on. Only the Lord. How dependent we are upon the Lord. Reminded of one of the great metaphors of the prophet Jeremiah. He in condemnation of his countrymen, he says, you are, uh, you are pursuing broken cisterns. Uh, you know, we have a cistern, we collect water. Paul says, your cisterns uh, have leaked and run out. Our God never runs out. Uh, the name of the aquifer by which we get a lot of our water in Oklahoma Ugalala. I'm always reading these articles, uh, the science, and, and again, I don't wish to uh, mocking them, but they're biting their fingernails. The Ugalala is running dry. Well, the Ugalala will run dry when God decrees it to be so. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be unmindful that we are here and we're God's stewards and we're to take care of the earth. I mean, I get all that. I support that. Uh, I engage in a measure of that. Uh, but I always have to smirk when they say, oh my goodness, we're running out of water and food and uh, uh, chicken little, the sky is falling. Uh, where do I go? Well, uh, it will fall when God turns the lights out. The Ugalala is not a broken cistern. 
God's going to take care of his people until he comes in eternity. Uh, And God's aquifer of salvation will never run dry. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And from him will flow rivers of living water. The aquifer of God saving his own. Third rhetorical questions in 11.35. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Again, the answer is no one. Self-evident rhetorical question. That God didn't need anyone to help him. And nobody pays him back for his accomplishments because the finite cannot repay the infinite. Some of you know that I hold to the theology that the church rediscovered that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, where it says in terms of justification that we do not participate at all because we cannot. Sinners cannot save themselves. Uh, and, And therefore, God doesn't need our help. I understand in the doctrine of sanctification that we participate by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. But in justification, there is no participatory act whatsoever. It is solely, entirely, uniquely, wholly the power of God in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Nowhere else can you go but Him. And he has no equals. Uh, We do not save ourselves. He saves us by his grace, mercy. He's under no obligation to save. And he does not sell his accomplishments or pay back favors. He acts solely and entirely on sovereign free grace. Uh, This text is uh, a quotation from Job chapter 41 and verse 11. I encourage you to turn to uh, the book of Job. <clears throat> Pardon me, chapter 41. Verse 11. Who was given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Paul doesn't pick up that line, but it's essential for the context. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is interrogating Job as to the vastness of the uniqueness of the creation. As you know, at some point, as Job's friends, I underline friends with a bit of irony, begin to persecute him. Always smile at that because, well, when you're, when you're in the church, everyone should treat you thusly and solely. Look, go read Job. His own friends are persecuting him. Uh, Don't be dismayed when your friends turn on you. I'm not saying they all will, but sometimes it's the way it is. 
Job chapter 38. He does what we oftentimes do. We begin to complain. So, Job has a gracious God who begins to correct him. 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Skip down to verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Any of you all able to do that? Don't tell me you're a rooster. Roosters don't make this happen. God makes it happen. Morning and evening. And it was so. Because God has so ordered the universe. The point that illustrates that God owes us no explanations whatsoever. Look at chapter 42 in verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. And Job repents. He repents. And we read that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job in verse 10. And blessed his latter days more than the beginning. It will be so to everyone who knows Jesus Christ. Your latter days will be the greatest of all. God owed Job nothing, but He gave him everything in grace. None of us is deserving except death, but He gave His Son and will give us all things, world without end. In a concise synopsis measure, you read Old Testament, New Testament. If you're a Christian, you're reading something of your last will and testament. But the greatest point of all is that God is your benefactor. Withholds nothing from His sons. We can't grasp the immensity of that in eternity. But it's far, far greater than the north wall in the depths of the ocean, the Grand Cayman Islands. And the reason is simply and uniquely Him. Because all things, all things in redemptive history are from Him, Paul says. Everything is from Him. He is the sole origin and source. He is the headwaters of the grace of God. When I was a young lad in Venezuela, the the Oklahomans and the Texans were always wanting to go on these great fishing trips, go to the headwaters where the fishing was the greatest and the fiercest and the best. The headwaters of the sovereign grace and mercy of God are in Jesus Christ. You go to Him because of who He is and what He has done. And all things are through Him. All things in redemptive history are through Him. He alone creates, sustains, and preserves His spiritual creation. Captured in the words of the Apostle John in 6th chapter of his Gospel. All that the Father has given me, I lose none. 
and all things are for him. He is the goal or end state of all of redemptive history. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God is purposeful in everything that He does. Save His own. Therefore, it's all by Him and for Him. And the uniqueness and singularity shouted us to go nowhere else but Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Paul is praising God much as he is here in Romans. And he says of Christ in describing the surpassing greatness of his accomplishments that he might have first place in everything because of what he did. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Having made purification for sin, he sat down to the right hand of God the Father because he had accomplished it all. In one momentous, stupendous act of redemption on the cross, he finished forever the work of redemption. And so he sat down. So, as you know, the Latin phrase, to God alone be the glory, is what Paul is telling us. If you're a Christian, that motto belongs to you. If you're not, I can only pray God in his mercy would run you to ground, bring you to himself. The conclusion of the matter is his glory. Chapter, uh, pardon me, chapter 11, verse 36b. To him be the glory forever and ever. So the redemption is no shared or participatory enterprise. Therefore, he gets all of the glory. All. Praise Him. He has written it for us to praise Him. And uh, may we continue to do so all the days of our life, knowing that our end will be so much greater than the beginning.